Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I invite your attention today. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And our text passage will be beginning in verse 6 down through verse 12. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Let me take just one more verse to read. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it that I made you sorry, that is, though I did regret it. Now, I regretted it for a moment that I had to make you sorry. But in the long run, I realized that the letter was valuable to you. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now, I'd like to select a text out of this text and deal with an issue that seems to be almost irrelevant in our time. In an age when technique is everything and from evangelism to revival all depends upon us, I would like to issue a corrective to this body by talking with you today about the matter of what old timers called the state of conviction. A state of conviction. Paul alludes to that in verse 7. And again in verse 8, he says, Though I did regret that I had to write such a tough letter to you over your incest and your sin, and the response of the Corinthians when he wrote his first letter was that they tried to challenge the authority of Paul because they did not want to deal with the sexual sin in the congregation. Now watch Paul's statement. I perceive that the same epistle, my letter, made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now that little while of sorrow is what we refer to as a state of conviction. It is a period of time in which God's Spirit is revealing our sin to us and we have not yet acknowledged and repented. It is the time in which the Spirit is persuading us to acknowledge our sin and repent of our sin. It is a troubling of the conscience which the Spirit uses to show us our sin. The spirit is not the conscience. The conscience is separate from the spirit's work in your life and mine. And so Paul had written this letter to them and then waited at Troas for Titus to return with news as to the response of the Corinthian church. And he later in this chapter refers to the great joy he had when he discovered that the Corinthians had responded to this state of sorrow or this state of conviction, this time or period of being troubled about sin. <coughs> we are not <coughs> alone 
the masters of a decision. What happens in us in response to sin depends upon the work of God in our hearts. And we work so hard at overcoming objections and witnessing and learning how to persuade people and get them to make a decision that we must never ever forget that no man calls Jesus Lord except the Spirit of God enables him. And there must be a period of conviction or troubling over sin. That must be. It can be in the life of an unbeliever as God is at work to convict you of your unbelief and rebellion against God. But it can also be in the life of a believer in which God is convicting and correcting us about something in our lives. Some of you have heard me tell about my experience of my friends uh, getting the attention when I was uh, 11 years old of uh, getting the attention of some clerks at a store so that I could swipe a couple of packs of cigarettes and a couple of cigars so that we could go down and try them out at age 11. I'm telling you, a cigar no fun at age 11. It'll make you think you drunk a bromide or two, I can tell you that. And then we were sitting down there by the river smoking when I heard a very familiar voice of my mother calling Charles Mark Quartz from the top of that cliff which always meant trouble when she said Charles Mark. And, uh, and so she took me home and I had to stop at my friends and try to wash my hands and wash out my mouth. And when I got there, she decided that she would let me stay in a state of sorrow over my sin until my father came home. And he terminated that state of sorrow in a rather traumatic and unforgettable way. <laughs> but what I didn't tell you is that for weeks and months after that, there was an unresolved part of that state of sorrow. It was a time of being troubled and being worried, and that was that later, when I was about 14 years old, I realized that I had offended that storekeeper, and not just my mom and dad, and I had to go back to that storekeeper and apologize so that I could clear my conscience and end the state of sorrow for, we don't use the word stealing when you're 11, it's swipe when you're 11, for swiping a couple of packs of cigarettes and a few cigars. And what made it even worse was the name of the man who owned the store was Moses. And it gave a certain religious connotation to the termination of this state of sorrow over sin which had remained unacknowledged and unconfessed to him at least. And this state of conviction is very real. It is a state of sorrow. No one can truly know the grace of God without first knowing the fear of God. I am convinced of that. That before we can know the grace, we must know the terror, the fear, the awesome fear of the Lord. 
go looking for a new car and try out three and suddenly you rec start recognizing automobiles that you've never recognized before. Some of them you can't even say the name, a Suzu or Mitsubishi or what, but they're there. And because you have a new car mindset, suddenly you begin to notice new cars. And see, the state of sorrow for sin is God's way of getting our attention to make us understand the fear of God, the terror of God, so that we can appreciate the grace of God. The state of conviction may last for a few hours, a few days, or a few weeks. It may last for a few months as God is at work revealing sin and persuading us to acknowledge and confess it. Hold your hand here. We're coming right back to the text. But I want to show you several examples in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up and declares the Pentecostal message. And in verse 40, with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And there entered a period of conviction. It didn't last long. We don't know for sure how long Peter's message was. This is likely a summary. Then those who gladly received his word responded to the word and were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to the body of believers. Chapter 8 of the book of Acts. We see that Philip is uh, on the road to Gaza, it's desert, and a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, in verse 27, had come to Jerusalem to worship. And then, as he was sitting in his chariot, the scripture says he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake him. Philip ran to him, heard him reading, and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. And he opened the scripture of Isaiah 53. And the eunuch answered Philip, verse 34, and said, Does the prophet speak this of himself or some other man? Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Isn't that a great thing? He just opened the scripture and showed him Jesus out of the word. And the, the state of conviction is now coming to a head. And so the eunuch responds and he commands the chariot to stand still. And he says, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip baptizes him. And he went on his way rejoicing. And the state of conviction, of preparation and persuasion was now ended. Never forget that God works in our lives to bring us to conviction, to persuade us of sin. It may last a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, a few months. But the purpose is to help us identify what it is. It may be a brooding over sin. It may be a brooding over a wrong that has been confessed, but we have not received God's forgiveness. Israel again and again was put in that position 
and they hardened their heart against the sorrow for sin. Now let's examine Paul's experience with the Corinthian believers. He says in verse 8, Even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. I'm sorry I had to write such a tough letter to you. But now that you have come to repentance, I'm not sorry. For I perceive that the epistle made you sorry only for a little while. Why? Verse 9. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner. Katatheon which is to say according to God or by the work of God or in a way that God would have you sorry over your sin. The first thing I want to say about the state of sorrow is that it is for sin. We must learn to understand that the state of sorrow God allows to come on us to give us new insight to our sin. And that is what Paul is saying. You were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. Now, there are three sources for this state of sorrow. There are three sources that, that <coughs> can come to us. The first is uh, that it comes from fellow believers. It is in chapter 7, verse 8, that Paul says, I wrote the letter to identify the sin which you had refused to identify. If we do not live in judgment for our sin, then the joy of being a part of a fellowship is that they will see something in our lives that we don't see. And a fellow believer will come and say, now, I see this in your life, Johnny, and I don't like what I see. Now, there are some of us who take that to extremes. We think we are... are, are uh, inspectors appointed by God with the gift of criticism. There are some people who think that's a, a spiritual gift. I don't know whether on your test you saw you had the gift of criticism, but there are some people who think they've got that gift and they want to practice it every chance they get. But there are also godly friends, faithful, the book of Proverbs says, are the wounds of a what class? A friend. Do you remember that? And Paul said, I wrote this letter to point out to you what had not been obvious to you, that there was sin in the fellowship and it was hindering the work of God. And sometimes God needs to use another believer in our lives. Sometimes God uses you in my life. Now, I don't mind if you come to me and say, Pastor, I see this in your life and I'm really concerned about that. And I want you to know I love you. And if I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you this. And I think I am old enough now to receive what you have to say to me. But if you come attacking me and you've lost your temper and you want to address me and not the problem and call me names, forget it because you will raise my hackles and both of us will be carnal. Amen? Amen. Now, I could give you a demonstration of that, but you don't want it and I don't want that. But when a brother or a sister comes to me and says, Mark, there's something I see developing in you that I don't think is good. I don't think you're seeing it. And I want to help you. I, I want you to see this. And I say this because I love you. 
Now, don't say, I love you, but. That just drives me nuts. The buts that follow the love, you can forget. Just tell me you love me and don't but anything. I love you and that's why I'm telling you this. Amen? Amen. Secondly, sometimes it is a scripture that God uses. All we have to do is be exposed to the word of God. Look, hold your hand here and look at Hebrews chapter 4. And let us never forget a function of the scripture in Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12, the word of God is living. It transcends the time in which it was written so that it is applicable to today. It is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts that you think no one knows and the intents of the heart. The other day as I was going through a message, getting ready to preach a message that I had preached before, I thought to myself, you know, my messages must not be any good because these illustrations are appropriate to this day. And if somebody reads this illustration in a hundred years, they're not going to understand it. And you know what? God brought Hebrews 4.12 to my mind, Max. It was a really interesting experience. He said, oh, no. My word is living. That means it's applicable to every age. The word of God is living and it transcends age and can be applied and understood in every historical period and in every time frame. There is a truth that stands above the age and there is an application that challenges or confronts the age and the culture. And when we read the Word of God, sometimes it just cuts right through and divides our motives from our intents, our thoughts and our intentions. I was uh, studying not long ago for a sermon, and I got my stereotype challenged by a passage of Scripture. I don't know about you, but I'll tell you what my first reaction is, Eddie. First thing I wanted to do was argue with the application of that Scripture and say, oh, no, I think that means this so I could fit my stereotype. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? You've, you've argued and said, wait a minute, no, 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 it can't mean that. It's got to mean this. This is what I believe. This is what I stand on. And suddenly I am required to re-examine my stereotype. And there are times when it takes nothing but the reading of God's Word to put us into a state of sorrow over sin, of conviction. And God takes that scripture read out of the daily bread. He takes that scripture read out of a daily passage. He takes one little idea of a scripture out of a, uh, out of a message and he applies that. If you only get one thing, one little help out of every message, I consider myself a successful preacher. Amen? Larry and I were, and Pat and I were out at uh, Southwestern Seminary doing the chapel seminary revival this week. And while I was preaching, an idea came to me I'd never thought of before. Now, that's scary. <laughs> and it's a little hairy when you go ahead and throw that idea out when it just came to you. 
And I was preaching on the thorn passage in 2 Corinthians 12. And that's present or durative tense. And when Paul prayed that the Lord would take his thorn away, God is saying, my grace is sufficient for you. I had never understood a little aspect of that till right then. And I just stated it out. That when God told Paul, my grace is sufficient, he didn't say my grace is, uh, is uh, joyful. He didn't say my grace is rich. He said my grace is sufficient. And he, he, Paul is saying, God said it. It was sufficient. It is sufficient. It shall be sufficient. And it will be sufficient for all time, meaning it will never run out. Now, I know that seems simple. Why didn't I see that before? But I'd never seen that before. And I just threw that out. And after the chapel service, a guy came up to me, a young pastor. And he said to me, you know, God just gripped me right then because he said, I thought I had everything God had to give me to last in this church. And he said, that little one truth has stuck in my mind and I am on my knees confessing that I thought God's grace had run out. Isn't that beautiful? Man, he made me feel like G. Camel Morgan and John Walvoord and John Phillips and every great Bible teacher all rolled into one there. And it just happened to come to me at the last minute preaching. Like I say, that's scary. Check it. The third way that God speaks and brings us to a state of conviction is by our conscience. Look at chapter 7, verse 1 there. As Paul begins this chapter, he says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, there's the challenge. But what he is saying, he, the, the spirit here is likely referring to the conscience. Now, the conscience is the moral policeman. Romans 2 15 says that our conscience excuses and accuses us. The conscience is that moral sense in us. It is contributed to by our parents, by what we've heard, by what we've been trained. It may or may not be biblical. It may or may not be controlled by the Holy Spirit. But the conscience can accuse you and can point its finger at you. Now, when we come to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that our consciences are purged with blood so that old standards of wrong by which we might be accused are removed and new standards, as we learn the scriptures, are taught to us. But you, you want to learn to distinguish between the Holy Spirit and your conscience and the, the distinguishing characteristic is always, does it match the Bible? If it matches God's revelation then you know it's not just of conscience, it is of the Holy Spirit. Now, having said that, the Holy Spirit sometimes uses our conscience in order to accuse us and show us a sin, a wrong. When my children were home, that would happen to me once in a while. It happened to me not long ago, and I had no children with me when a, a woman gave me $10 too much change. And I picked up all the money and entered into an instantaneous state of conviction. And when I looked at it, I thought just for a moment, all these thoughts. Have you ever done this? 
If she wants to get rid of that tin, that's her own problem. Amen? This company already charges too much for its products. I'm going to keep the $10. They, they deserve it, right? How many would have argued that? <clears throat> and just for a moment, the conscience hammered me. No, Mark, you can't keep that $10. And I pulled it out and gave it back to her. It happened to be at Sam's <laughs> where you have to pay cash. I think they do take credit cards now, don't they? Do they take credit cards at Sam's? No, they don't. Okay, well, anyway, it was at Sam's. And I gave her the $10 back and she looked at me and said, I wondered if you were the preacher because she had my card right there in front of her. <laughs> and I thank you for giving me the $10 back because that would have come out of my salary. Now that was a short state of conviction. From the time I picked up the change and looked at it, the Lord was already working me over. But God does use the conscience to enter us into a state of conviction over sin. In Ecclesiastes, do you remember reading, there's a passage in there that says, an old and foolish king will no more receive admonition. Shame on us when we think we've been saved so long and we've got so much of God's grace that we no longer can take the admonition of our conscience, the admonition of the word, the admonition of our friends. A state of heart which rejects admonition is characterized as hard. And it was Israel's downfall and it will be your downfall. Which is why I say every Christian ought to practice saying, I'm sorry or I was wrong once every single day to avoid the heart getting hard against sin. The second thing Paul says in this passage is that the state of sorrow is not only for sin, but it is from God. Notice how many times he refers in verse 9 and 10. This is godly sorrow. Verse 10, godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted. But worldly sorrow produces condemnation and death. Now, there are two sides to this coin and two things that are meant by it. One, what it means is that when I feel bad over sin and it comes from God, then it will lead me to repentance. It will lead me to change. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop using this word. I'm going to stop taking advantage of this person. Godly sorrow always leads you to change. But if you enter into a state of sorrow for something you've done wrong or for a failure, and it only leads you to death and oppression and condemnation, then you know that is from the world. That is from the devil. Because the devil will never make you sorry for sin to lead you to repentance. He doesn't want you to repent. All he wants to do is paralyze you with guilt. But it means the flip side of that also, that godly sorrow for sin, conviction, means that I bear conviction in a godly way because it comes from God. And that I receive it as from the Lord as opposed to receiving this 
as from the devil. So godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation. That's the way you identify this state of sorrow. Did it come from the devil or did it come from God? And he said, verse 11, observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. There it is. A godly manner. Godly sorrow leads to godly conviction. Turn back to John 16. And do you remember John 16? That great passage where Jesus warns that he's praying for the Spirit. And he says in verse 7, if I don't leave you, the helper, the Spirit will not come, but if I depart, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit couldn't come to reside in us until Christ had offered his sacrifice of blood at the cross. And then once we have been purged and our temples have been cleansed, now the Holy Spirit could come and live in us, which he did at Pentecost, and he lives in every believer since then. Now, when the Spirit comes, verse 8, he will convict the world. This is his task on unbelievers. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of the sin of unbelief, verse 9, of righteousness, because there's no righteous standard, the life of Christ to show us what holiness is. So the Holy Spirit has to show it to us from the Scripture. And he convicts us of judgment that there is no future in serving the devil. And the prince of this world is judged at the cross. But, verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you disciples, the church, the body, into all truth. For he doesn't speak on his own, but whatever he gets from God or hears from God, he will speak and will warn you and tell you of judgment to come if you don't confess your sin. That's the Holy Spirit's task. We're moral beings. There is a relationship in every moral being between consequences and deed. What I do leads to consequences. Every Christian in this auditorium has a three-dimensional moral obligation. You have an obligation to God, you have an obligation to yourself, and you have an obligation to others. You cannot live outside of your obligation as a moral being to God and to yourself and to others. That's why you must learn to keep on dealing with sin. God remits judgment on us by the cross because Christ gave his life for us. And the law is dead. It has no more claim, no more condemnation. But there is the law of the Father's heart. And I want to please him. And when I violate the law of the Father's heart, I'm offended and he's offended and I enter into a state of sorrow for sin. The third thing about this state that Paul mentions here is that it is for sin from God, but it is unto repentance. There it is. I, I just, I worry sometimes whether we do have too easy a salvation today. I, I'm concerned about that. You say, well, how will I know if I really do repent? I don't think it can be salvation without repentance. I think we do you a disfavor if we tell you all you have to do is just accept Jesus and you're saved. I think there has to be a sorrow for sin. I've got to be sorry that I've wronged God. I've got to acknowledge my sin. 
That's why when I pray with somebody to lead them to Christ, I always want to acknowledge, help them to acknowledge their sin. I am a sinner. I will turn from my sin. The church is not a Christian massage parlor. I am not Dr. Feelgood. I do want you to go away from every service encouraged, but I want you to know God is a holy God and he's offended by our sin. And there must be Repentance. And yes, as a Christian, there will be times when you will be in a long state of... I've, I've known Christians in a state of conviction for years because they wouldn't yield to the Lord. Now, I'd be awfully, awfully afraid of that because after a while, your heart will get hard and you wonder if the Lord will withdraw himself from you. But look at what Paul says in verse 11. Here's the product of, of godly sorrow. Here's the way you know genuine repentance. John Calvin said, sorrow for sin is the origin and source of repentance. In every Christian's heart, that ends the quote, that, that the, the uh, sorrow for sin is the origin and source of repentance. For me, every Christian's heart has a throne and a cross. If I stay on the throne, I'm not on the cross. If I take myself off the throne and go to the cross, I die to sin and self. And when I take myself off the throne and I go to the cross to die from sin and self, I have now made room for whom? On the throne. For Jesus. Can you get that picture firmly fixed in your mind? That repentance is taking ourselves off the throne of our lives and bending ourselves at the cross to acknowledge our sin. Watch verse 11. He names seven things first that are evidence of, of repentance. What diligence, what earnest spirit is produced in you when you really repent, when you really genuinely repent? What diligence is produced in you? What clearing of yourselves, secondly, it's an eagerness to have everything that is a mystery or everything that is a hindrance between God and me removed. Third, what indignation. You know, when we repent, the things we once loved are now, what class? Hated. The things we once cherished are now relinquished. The things we once grasped are now given up. That's a sign of repentance. Fourth, fear. What fear? What alarm in our minds about how close we came to sin. I thought that the other day when the Holy Spirit was working me over, over an attitude. And I thought how awful that attitude was. And I said to myself, Mark, how in the world could that happen to you? And it scared me. I got on my face and I said, God, I don't ever want to get to the place where I'm no longer alarmed by what I can potentially do or think or say. Next, he says, what vehement desire what longing, when you repent, you have a new longing for God, a new longing for holiness that you've never had before. What zeal, what concern for the holiness of God we have 
That's an evidence of true repentance. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. What vindication. What vindication. What readiness to see justice and right work out. There it is. What in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Meaning you have proven your repentance. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong. The guy who was causing sin in the body, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong. I was doing this because I had a greater concern for the life, the spiritual life of the body, the church. It's an old Jewish legend about Abraham who one night had a stranger, an old man, come to visit him, tired and hungry from a trip. Abraham took the man in his tent and washed his feet and prepared a meal for him. And the old man began to eat, and Abraham said to him, Aren't you even going to bless God for the food? And the old man said, I don't worship any God except fire. And Abraham said, get out of my tent. Get away from me. I don't want anybody in my tent who doesn't worship the Lord. And the old man got up and left without finishing the meal. And then the Lord came to Abraham and said, friend, Abraham, I've been putting up with that old man for 80 years. Couldn't you have just put up with him for one night? And you know, when I think of how God has put up with me and my flesh and you and your flesh and your sin, God has patience with us while he works us through the state of sorrow, a state of conviction, a state in which he is revealing sin and persuading us to turn from it. He is so patient to put up with us. When we understand that, what can we do but turn to him in repentance and faith? I don't ever want to get to the place in the Christian life where I can no longer enter a state of conviction over my sin, whether it's for just a few moments or a few hours. Some years ago, a well-known Methodist bishop by the name of Bishop McConnell in the old days of China went to Shanghai to preach. He stayed in an unair conditioned hotel, of course. There was no air conditioning in China in those days. And his window was right above the rickshaw station where the men who drove the carriages waited for the call. And they waited for hotel guests to transport them somewhere. And Bishop McConnell said the first night he was there in China, he could hardly hardly sleep because every five or ten minutes he could hear the hacking coughs of the tubercular rickshaw operators below. <coughs> and they kept him awake all night. <coughs> he said the second night he slept a little bit better than the first night but he still was awakened by their coughs. Their tubercular coughs. But he said after he'd been there five nights, he was able to sleep peacefully all night. 
and not one cough bothered him. And I say to you, church, don't ever get so accustomed to sin, which is always offensive to God, the holy God, that you get to the place where God cannot put you ever again in a state of conviction for whatever purpose. But open your heart and your mind to him and say, Oh, God, let me never be above admonition or reproach. But by the body, by the word, by my conscience, by the spirit, show me what is wrong in my life that I might be sensitive and let me never grow insensitive to sin in my life or sin in the lives of others or hurts and needs in the world about me. Amen and amen.